We all have a story to tell. Let's tell yours. Welcome to the Intellectual People Podcast with your host, Jason. Come together and listen to journey stories and more from interesting people. Welcome your host, Jason. Welcome to the Intellectual People Podcast. I often post on forums, and I'd like to personally thank those forum owners for allowing me to post on those forums. In no particular order, they are audiosciencereview.com, audiocircle.com, audioshark.org, audiophilestyle.com, AV Nirvana, which is also the home of Rumi Q Wizard and Audio Lens, DIYaudio.com, gears.com, and Parts Express Forum. Thank you so much and enjoy. Today I have Chris Conacher from Audiophile Style. How are you doing today? I am doing terrific here in beautiful, sunny Minneapolis. Oh, is it nice and cold there too? <laughs> yeah, it was about 10 this morning, so not too bad. If that's not too bad to you, then more power to you. It's uh, only about 80 here today. So <laughs> anyway, Chris, I doubt when you were a little kid that one day you said, I'm going to have an audiophile forum. So why don't you first tell us what audiophile style is, and then let's work back up until current time, if you would. Sure, sure. You're very correct. I did not dream of this. But anyway, audiophile style is an online community with news, reviews, and user forums for people to talk about everything related to their audiophile. You know, I say audiophile hobby. Um, a lot of people don't like that word, but, you know, really, it's a very important hobby uh, to a lot of us. So the way the site is structured is there's a front page style. Uh, like when you go to the site, you view like a front page. That's where I will say more formal reviews or news are published. And then there's the much more active community forum side of it, where people from around the world are constantly talking about their pursuit of home audio perfection. Okay. And let's go back in time and talk about how you went on this journey. So obviously you've been into music for many, many years. Even as a child, I would presume that you enjoyed music, correct? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So early on when you were growing up as a teenager, did you have an interest in computers? Yes and no. We got a Commodore 64 back in the day. And, you know, my parents were not into anything techie computers or anything like that. So they got the Commodore 64, connected it to our old tube television and said, have at it with the book that came with it. Right. You know, it lasted about 30 minutes and nobody in my house could figure it out. And I was like, well, this is dumb. I just typed in this whole page and now it just flashes colors. So it's like, okay, I was interested, and then I wasn't. And then my interest in computers faded until about junior year in college. And then I was just all in. I was like, there's no stopping. I was just like obsessed with learning everything I could and just went from there. So were you a coder back in college then mainly or more into the infrastructure? So in college, I was way into the infrastructure. That to me 
came easier and it was pretty easy to teach myself up to a certain level before I needed to get, you know, more advanced, not specific, what's the word I'm looking for, more professional uh, training. Um, okay. So that that was the my first entry into it. And when you graduated, did you then go into IT as a profession? Yes, yes. You did. Um, yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting. You know, uh, on some of your other episodes, you talk about career changes or paths and stuff that you don't think of. Yep. In college, um, I wanted to be a U.S. Marshal. So I interned between my junior year and senior year at the U.S. Marshal Service in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, of all places. It's the only place that had an opening. So I'm like, I'll move there for the summer. Fine. Um, and chased fugitives for a summer. And it was fantastic. <laughs> um, so cool. And yep. then I graduated and was like, well, I really like, you know, the IT stuff. And plus getting hired by the government, you don't just send an application in or show up at the door and hey, I'm ready. It's such a long drawn out process. I had taken an exam and was waiting on results. And I was just like, <laughs> whatever. Um, and I was living at home and I don't think my parents liked me just saying, well, I'm just waiting for those test results to come back, <laughs> you know? Um, so I got a job on a help desk, um, IT help desk. And that's kind of how it started. And then while that was happening, I went and got a bunch of certifications um, just to kind of like show them that, hey, I can do this. And now it's official that I can do this and I want to move up and, you know, that kind of thing. Understood. I have to ask, what is the best uh, story you have as an IT help desk person that you can tell us? Oh, my God. <laughs> so this uh, I'm trying to think of a specific story, but I will tell you what this job was about. And I'm sure your mind will go, oh, my God, there's probably so many. The specific help desk that I was on was I worked at Regis Corporation, which was at the time the world's largest hair care company. They own salons all over the world. This help desk was, oh, and let me say, all of the salons had a DOS computer in them. <laughs> this help desk was for stylists to call in with their computer problems. And I have nothing against stylists. Everybody has their own specialty. I couldn't cut hair if my life depended on it. At the time, they were not skilled in computers and the systems they had. So sure. all the calls I took were from stylists with problems with their computers. It was, oh my gosh, it was quite an experience. Um, fortunately, there was an opening uh, within like six months that I started and I got that to move on. But it was quite an experience. And I wish I spoke other languages. Um because some of them would call in and speaking another language and we would try to, you know, work it out what was going on because nobody where I was was there who could speak. Oh, my gosh. It, it was a great first job out of college, though. Did you learn a lot from it? The most stuff I learned from that was relating to people and realizing that um, I don't know if you've ever seen the old Saturday Night Live skit with the guy named Nick Burns would show up at your computer. He was the tech guy. <laughs> and you would start talking. And he would go, move. <laughs> this was, you know, you kind of have that mindset until you start dealing with real people. 
And it was it was good to have them call in and be like, uh, slow down. You're going way too fast. And it's like a it's like a reality check. You know, everybody doesn't live in whatever world you're in, no matter what, you know, world that is. Relatable experience, right? Mm hmm. And still to this day, I would imagine it's relatable with many different personalities online behind a computer. Absolutely. One hundred percent. Yes. It's amazing how prior experience still uh, still helps, right? Oh, all the years. Yes, completely. Right? And I still think about things some old bosses have said over the years and be like, God, at the time, I was like, whatever. That's so stupid. But now I'm like, all right. Maybe he was onto something. Yep. So after that job, where did you go? So I stayed within the company and I moved up to an internal. Uh, it wasn't necessarily help desk. It was more of a computer support role. Okay. Where I just at the so the home office is here in Minneapolis, and there was roughly 500 people at the time, and I just did that all day every day. Um, people calling. I can't do this. I can't do that. Just more of a traditional help desk role. Um, and that was, and at the same time, I'm still, you know, it's like do that for my normal job. And then when I get home, it's constant. How do I improve my skills? How do I get better? Because let's be honest, this computer support thing, it can't last that long. This isn't fun. Um, and you can get burned out because you always work with some people who I don't want to say don't pull their weight, but just have different priorities and like to do a couple of things in the time you do 10. And I just got burned out. I would have a page full of people calling me direct instead of into like, you know, the normal number where they get all fanned out. Right. I was just like, oh, man, <laughs> this this isn't fun. But I again, I learned a whole bunch um, from that. And I was doing that position for about a year. OK. And then from that position did you stay within the company yeah yeah i stayed within the company and the reason why i stayed um and you know i was young so there was i had had no loyalty to any company and i was like who's ever going to pay me the most money is where i'm going um right. that's just my mindset at the time sure. um but i stayed at the company because of the people um my boss was awesome and the people i worked with were awesome as well and that's the only reason um, I didn't get paid more than I would if I would have left. But I was like, OK, I I did. I didn't really process it at the time. Like, you know, the money not worth it. It's better. I just was like, yeah, whatever. I'll stay here. Um, so then I started in a network support role, um, which was I finally got to stop interfacing with end users and just interface with the network design team. Um, which was much more fun. And that's where I really started to learn uh, how to do, you know, the stuff I really wanted to do, switches, routers, firewalls, stuff like that. But it was still just kind of like a, a support role. And the guys were like, okay, here's what you're going to do next. It was no decide what you want to do. Right. Um, and that lasted probably eight or nine months there in that position. And then... You left the company? No. <laughs> wow. Fortunately, fortunately um, a guy above me left. And I, um, from there, I went into my last role with them. Um, I became the network administrator. Okay. And that was a blast. Incredibly fun. 
um, because that was, you know, I get to listen to the requirements and then figure out how to do it. How to do it. And yeah, that was that was one of my funnest jobs ever. It was the company was on a tear and they were there was acquisitions just left and right around the world. And it was like, okay, Chris, figure out how we're going to mirror data around the world to these people and connect their office. So I remember at at one time I went to Europe for 29 days on the company and I was hopping around to Paris and London, just figuring out how these offices were going to work and what we needed to do. And it was a blast. And I was young. I had no commitments. Um, so that was really fun. And uh, the stuff that I got to learn then was stuff that I still use today, not necessarily with specific technologies. Like, sure, I configured an EMC Symmetrics to mirror data between Minneapolis and Salt Lake City. That was shortly after 9-11 because everybody was like, if our data goes at this location, we got to be, you know, mirrored somewhere else. So we did that, set up, you know, switch from like a Cisco PIX firewall to a checkpoint firewall. It wasn't specifically the technologies that stay with me. It's the concepts. Um, and that is invaluable. So would you say that that experience at that job is probably the one defining moment that really propelled you to where you're at today. Yes. And in an interesting way, um, because after being a network administrator for about a year, I was talking to a guy I worked with and like, you know, I think I'll be able to master all of this and really know it all pretty quickly. And he goes, no, you will <laughs> never master this. But what you need to know is you can figure it out. And to me, that's been the best advice I've ever received. The guy who gave it to me, it was just like off the cuff. It wasn't, I'm going to give this guy some good advice. But that is with me till today. Um, if something happens like anywhere for anything I'm using, I'm like, well, I'll just figure it out. Right. Or people will ask me, you know, what should I do for this? Is that your skill set? Do you know it? I'm like, well, I'll figure it out. Right. And that just that, that's the best advice I ever got. It's good advice. You left there and then what? Yeah. Uh, so I left there and went to law school of all things. Wow. I yeah. 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 Um, in college, I absolutely loved constitutional law, criminal law. I loved it okay. um, and thought, OK, there's going to be a whole bunch of tech law stuff coming up. Uh, so this was about 2005. Okay. Um, and I thought, oh, this will be good because I can use both the things I love yeah. and get on with it. No, that sucked. <laughs> what sucked about it? What did you not uh, like? I figured out that being a lawyer is the last thing I want to do. I thought I could go get a law degree and do something kind of around it, not sure. necessarily be an attorney. And it's like, if you want to be a little unorthodox, ugh, that that's a tough, uh, that's a tough field to be unorthodox. Everybody's white shirt, black tie. This is how it's done. Long history. This is, you know, I was like, you know what? And I'm also way more entrepreneurial than the guys I was in school with. Like I was in school with one guy who wanted to, he ended up being in Congress in Minnesota, but that's what he wanted to do. But he goes, 
I absolutely love the rules and how to get around the rules and write the rules. I was just like, oh my God, <laughs> not me. Uh, I just want to know what the rules are and then I'm just going to go. So I was much more entrepreneurial. Um, but the one thing I got out of law school that continues to help me today was how to write. And I am no expert on writing. You know, I, I am not. But You're a good writer. Very the, good. Thank you. Law school is so much of it is about writing. And I loved that part. If I could have just stayed in my writing class, it was like, oh, this is great. Because, you know, it's we would write and then we would defend something. And that part of it was fun. All the rest of it and the people, not my cup of tea. Way more entrepreneurial than that. How, how much of it did you make through? I got through a year and a half. And so half of it. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it was like, it's all downhill from here. The first year is terrible. Second year, you work a lot, whatever. And the third year is easy. But right. after a year and a half, I really was just like, you know what? I didn't like it over the summer between the first and second year. I was like, I'm going to stick this out. I quit my job to do this. So I'm going to stick it out. And I was just like, you know what? I'm done. This has already cost me like 150 grand. So I don't want to tack on another 150,000 to this bill <laughs> um, and figure out that I don't like it in another one and a half years. So then I was out. Um, and from there, I went to Ameriprise Financial in IT. Do you regret not having a law degree today after all the years looking back on it? Absolutely not. No. Okay. No. I okay. got... Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but I got what I needed out of that. And that was learn how to write. Fair enough. Okay. Mm -hmm. You get this new job and then what? What are you doing? Yeah. So I am working in technology consumption management for Ameriprise. At the time, they were uh, right before I started, it used to be called American Express Financial Advisors. And they were obviously tied with American Express. They spun out into their own company, Ameriprise Financial, public company. And they need to figure out, or they needed to figure out, how do we stop spending this much money? Do is, do we need everything we have? I mean, this is crazy. So that was part of my job was to work with every person in technology, whether it's let's look at this JavaScript to see if it's as efficient as possible, to can we offload the SSL encryption to hardware offloaders to save money? Because much of their spend was with IBM. And so a lot of people don't get like IBM will charge you by the second on mainframe processing time. And I mean, that's just how it works. So sure. if, if we could shave three seconds off every single job that runs every single day, we were going to save big money. Um, so it was stuff like that uh, that I did. And it was it was an interesting job. I got to touch every single piece and work with some awesome people. And I think. The best part about that job, which I would have had no clue going into it, was working with the incredible people from a couple offshore companies. I was absolutely amazed at the ability of people from uh, Tata and Infosys. Oh, my God. And the loyalty and hard work that they put in blew my mind. Like I had friends who would be in a similar position to them. That I don't know if they took everything for granted, but they were just like, eh, I'll get to it tomorrow. These guys, they worked so hard and they were so smart. So 
I just, whenever I hear anybody talk about offshoring and Infosys or Theta, I'm like, you want those guys. They're incredible. Are you driven by the technology or are you driven by the act of learning? I'm 100% driven by learning in everything I do. And I that even goes into like politics. I, I, I don't want to touch on politics within positions, but I mean, we can because I said nothing's off limits in this conversation conversation. But like when I talk to some of my friends who are on the opposite side of me in politics, I ask everything I can because I want to learn about that position. So with life and me, it's everything is about learning. I never look at a piece of technology and go, oh, that's cool just because it's technology. Um, that's just a rabbit hole. And we've all seen technologies that go nowhere and we're just hyped to make money and stuff like that. So it's all about learning for me. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. So you stay at Ameriprise for how long? I was at Ameriprise, let's see, for three years. So this is from probably, or two and a half, I don't know, somewhere in there, probably from 2006-ish to 2009. Okay. And so in 2007 um, is when I started the website as Computer Audiophile. Before you start Audiophile Style, are you listening to music on a stereo at that point? So uh, at that point, so during law school, I had, I found a tiny apartment that was somewhat close to school, stayed there. And then I was still there when, or actually, no, I met my current wife, uh, my only wife, but current wife too. Um, I met her and we moved into a duplex somewhat close. And I had sold all of my stereo stuff. I just, there was no room. I had some headphones, um, but I hated it. I, I just was like, oh gosh, this this is no fun. I, I like, I need to listen to music on, I'll say a good system, but it's not just the system. It's what the music does for me on a good system. You know, stuff like that, how it makes me feel. And so uh, I really didn't have much um, during those years. Did your wife complete law school? My wife actually didn't go to law school. She was in graduate school to become, she has her master's in public health and nutrition. So yes, of course she completed that. <laughs> She's the smarter of us. So <laughs> I thought maybe you met her in law school. No, no, fortunately not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you're really into audio or you're really into music is really what it is, right? Yeah. Yes. How does, and for the people that don't know, and we'll get into the why soon, you started a website called Computer Audiophile. How did that come about? Yes. So that came about as I'm sitting in this small duplex in Minneapolis, Prospect Park neighborhood, um, going, okay, I don't have like any equipment here. I should probably put my CDs, the physical discs on my computer or rip them or do whatever. And I started researching and I'm like, I just want to use my computer for playback. I don't want a CD player. I'm not going to go out and buy one in 2007 or six, whatever. That was probably early 2007. And I started looking for information and I couldn't find anything or I would find something in a nook and cranny of the web somewhere. And 
I was just like, oh my God, if I'm struggling to do this and I'm tech savvy, how is Joe Sixpack going to do this? And Joe Sixpack doesn't want to know all this, but he wants to get into it. And I was like, okay, let me see what I could do. Uh, Maybe I could start my own website. Oh, that'd be kind of cool. So I started looking into uh, content management systems, CMS platforms. And I thought, oh, these are pretty simple. Uh, there's nothing to this. You just you can download the free one or pay a couple of bucks to get a better one. And from then, I mean, I remember telling my wife, hey, I think I'm going to do this. She goes, yeah, OK. I mean, <laughs> it's just like, you know, nothing big is right. sure, I probably had a bunch of ideas. I my mind works in entrepreneurial ways. I mean, not that that's good or bad. It just does. So I have ideas and I talk to her about them and she probably thought, yeah, just another idea. OK. So you start it, computeraudiofile.com, which today is audiofilestyle.com. And we're going to talk about why the name changed later. So you start it really just for yourself is what your thought was, correct? Yeah, I start it mainly. So I look at it this way and I still look at it this way. And people should take this in the, sp- in the spirit in which it's intended is I write for myself and I hope other people like it. I cannot write to try to please uh, a portion of the audience. Um, I cannot write or research or do anything to try and please other people. It's all for myself, not necessarily, I mean, not in some narcissistic or conceited way, but I'm like, if I'm interested in something, then I will do the best I can at it. If somebody says, hey, write about this new turntable cartridge, oh God, I, I would have no interest. So it's it's all so started to write for myself and at the time i thought okay uh to make this last i want to also have a user form because the the traffic that you can get with you know uh main articles and a user form combined far greater than is if i just write articles or if i just do the user form stuff like that so that was kind of going through my head um when i started it and so it started on November 20th, 2007. So that's my happens to be my birthday. Um, thought, well, this is as good a day as any to just, you know, push the live button and see what happens. Uh, what's the worst that that can happen? And so I would go to Ameriprise during the day, do IT work, come home and work just as many hours at night on the website. Um, and, you know, that's kind of how it works for most people who want to start their own thing is if you're not independently wealthy, you got to have a main job and your second gig. Were you writing your articles mainly because you learn and you immerse yourself best when you write? Did you find that by writing about whatever subject you were writing about, it helped you process what you have learned and you wanted to put it on paper for yourself, basically, and then others to enjoy, hopefully? Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like the thing, if you teach somebody else something, you understand it way better. So I would go into something like I wrote once I wrote this thing called like the CD ripping methodology and strategy. It was just this huge, long, you know, manifesto of here's what you should do. But that really started for myself. How do I want to do this? And the ones I've done, did I do it right? Um, And I figured if I can write something super detailed and do all of the research 
that's going to be a good document. Other people will probably want to read it. If I was just surfing the web to figure out uh, how best can I rip these CDs, stuff's going to go in and out of my head and I'm going to forget half of it. And maybe I'll take a few nuggets and then I'll have to go back and read three months later when I figure out I did it wrong. So yes, completely. How long did it take you to get some sort of following once you hit that live button? Yeah. So I remember the first day, of course, it was my mom and my wife. So I had two people. Um, After the first 30 days, I was so excited. I had 90 people who had signed up for the site. And I was like, oh, this is cool. Maybe this is something, you know, (laughs) like all 90 people. I mean, it was 88 more than I thought I would have. So, you know, yeah. So the first 30 days that that I think seeing that was kind of like it gives you a boost of confidence. It's it's like you shouldn't look for external validation. Obviously, it wasn't like I needed that validation of my concept, but it was like, ah, these people agree with me that this is a topic that needs or a a subject matter thing that needs to be filled a void. How many members is audiophilestyle.com today? Oh my gosh. Uh, So there's probably, here's how it works. There's probably 100,000 people who actually have accounts, but less than 1% of people actually have accounts and post. So most people are just drive by, They'll find us via Google looking for a product review or, you know, shit, this stopped working. How do I fix it? Stuff like that. And they just read. And, you know, there's a lot of introverts who don't want to get involved with an online conversation. And I completely get that. I I got an email uh, through the contact us page, I think, two days ago from a professor at a major university who said, I have these questions. They're related to a front page article. But there's no way I'm going to post this even under a pseudonym, anonymous, whatever. I just can't do it. I, I don't like user forums and comments, you know, and I'm like, I totally get it. So I posted that for him uh, and we'll see how it works. That's what I usually do is just say, hey, this just came in. I'll post it um, anonymously. Um, so, yeah, there's very comparatively very few people sign up and actually comment versus how many people actually read the site. Do you find do you think that's true across many forums or most forums? Absolutely. Yes. What and you think it's all because of them wanting to hide behind their computer, if you will? Well, you know, there's you know, I, I hate to pigeonhole everybody into the same sure. thing, but say a lot of the people that I know um who I've worked with, so kind of an offshoot is I will get called by say like an audio dealer to he has a customer who needs a new network or something and it's got to work for audio so i will consult to an audio dealer and say okay this is what we should do um we'll do this system and i'll configure it and i'll fly there we'll set it up and we'll get it working and so i've done that all over the world and everyone i've met has never commented on a website so there's just a lot of people that you know whether it's time um, they just don't have the time. They, a lot of them think they don't have the skills. Like, what am I going to add to this? Right. These guys are way smarter than I am. So there's just a, a number of reasons why people don't. And I, I get it. Do you? You really do get it? Yeah, I, I do. Because I think of all the sites that I visit and the ones that I've actually signed up for accounts with. 
And to a certain extent, there's like account burnout. As irrational as that may sound, uh, I would just be like, no, I read this all the time and I don't have an account here. I don't want to create one. I'm not going to comment, whatever. I'm sure one of the next 4,000 comments is going to say what I was going to say. So, you know, whatever. So you do the same to these other forms as these people do to your form. So you you understand it that way. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yep. Has audiophile style surprised you? Yes, absolutely. 100% surprised me. And um, the biggest thing that has surprised me is how, for lack of a better word, cool the people are in the community. Okay. Um, it. Uh, you, you go into something not knowing and you you first get feedback from the vocal minority who hate everything you do and try and find some way to twist anything you said into some negative. Um, so it's like you have that in the back of your mind. But it turns out the most surprising thing is flying to Munich for the trade show and meeting people who are like, I've been reading your site since day one or probably day two because they weren't the first two people. And, you know, I love it. And here's my screen name on the site. Um, and next thing you know, you're, you have a phone conversation well after the show with them. And so it's just surprising how nice, how gracious people are with their time. Um, it's, it's really a testament to people all over the world, generally good people. Right. And I think that's something really important here is to remember, even with so much negativity throughout the world, in all places that there really are some great people and the majority are, are great people. Right. And you yes. experience that firsthand daily. A absolutely. Every single day. Um, uh, it's, you know, and I find a lot of the, the problems that come up are all about communication and, you know, we're in almost every country in the world. I, don't yeah we even had somebody from iran the other day <laughs> like ah okay interesting but not many from there um but when you don't all speak a native your your, your language your first language is different sure things are going to be different and you know as much as we try there's miscommunication a lot and somebody may come off being a bit blunt or using all caps but they have no idea or that's how they do it with everyone else and you know so communication is such a huge part it's and giving people slack you know it's like don't always assume that this person has bad intentions right it that and that's very hard to do when you have hundreds of people like trying to hack you every day or signing up with fake accounts to post spam it is really hard to keep that in your mind like i, I just gotta give these people a break right and i think it should be said too especially for forums is that you have a large cultural difference because it is people from around the world, right? Which speaks to your point of people might not necessarily have ill intent. It's that culturally they're different. So it's not a matter of them conforming to us because it's a USA based site. It's that you have to remember it's a worldwide site based in the US, right? Yeah, exactly. So 50% of our traffic comes from the U.S. and 50% from everywhere else. And there are a few other countries that are bigger than others, but it's totally global. Um, and 
I absolutely love that. I didn't even that didn't cross my mind really when I started it. I didn't think about people are going to come here from Bangladesh and learn the same things, you know, that everyone else is talking about. It just, I didn't. And, you know, another piece is yes, everybody has different cultural backgrounds, but everyone has different, like everything, like different bank accounts, everything is different. And yet we can all get together and talk about the same things. You know, our same goal of I want to reproduce music as accurately as possible in my house or I want to use DSP and just make it how I want it to sound. Right. And, you know, and this audiophile journey that a lot of us are on, it is not a thing just for people that can afford the best things in life. It definitely is not. I mean, I think when I started my audiophile journey, $500 speakers was that was rich for me. I managed to do it, saved my money, but you know, I enjoyed it just as much as the guy with $500,000 speakers. Right. It's not about that. It's just, it's about a shared passion. Understood. What year did you quit your job and realize I'm, I can actually do this full time? So October of 2009, I was like, I'm done. Less I, yeah, I thought, there's only one way to take this to the next level, and that is to have no fallback plan and to do it 100% of the time. I mean, that's just the way I think. Um, and I'm sure there's other ways to do it with, you know, business plans and fallback plans and all of that. I can't think that way. Okay. Um, it totally makes my brain hurt. I just have to think about where I want to go. How do I get there and just make it happen? It's like, Tell me what the rules are. I don't care what they are. I will just figure out how to stay within them and do it. Um, so October 2009, I told my wife, I'm quitting and I'm going to do the website full time. And here's how I'm going to make up the income gap. And I'm going to do it by this time, I bet. It wasn't a, it's on a spreadsheet. This was all just in my head. Like, I'm going to do it by this time because I think I can contact this person, this person, and this person and make it happen. What was so, her reaction? Uh, her reaction was a little bit of shock and no, you're not. Um, but at the same time, as she says, she's like, I'm ride or die with you. I, if this is what you want to do, I am 100% behind it and I will help you make this happen. And so that was, it was on one hand, a stressful jump to say, I'm getting paid every other week automatically, (laughs) no matter what I do, this is comfortable, um, to just be like, if I don't work, I don't get paid. Or in 2009, let's see, what could happen with the economy? Ah, oh yeah, that's right. There was a big housing crisis and it was almost a depression, the big, you know, big recession. So it was tough. It was stressful. But I also have a way of just not thinking about that kind of stuff. And sure, it's detrimental sometimes, but it's beneficial in terms of starting business. It's in a way, it's naivete. Of just like that's not going to affect me. I'm just going. I'm going to do this. Whatever. It obviously has worked out very well for you, and I don't want to get into the financial aspects because that's not any of our business. Can you tell us how you provide this to be your full time job? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so ninety five percent of the income for the website comes from advertising, and that advertising is sold directly. So 
if people aren't familiar with how advertising models work, is you can work with third parties who will find advertisers that'll advertise on you or advertise with you. Or you can use something like Google AdSense is just put a piece of code in your website and then Google's going to serve you ads. Those models, if you want to do this full time, absolutely do not work because you're going to get pennies on the dollar. And it's like, okay, I just gave you thousands and thousands of clicks and I got pennies. Not a chance. I ran Google ads probably for 30 days on, in the, on the first year of the site and was like, nah, this this doesn't work. I need a different model. I need something better. So 95% of the income comes through direct sales. So that's me talking to manufacturers, software developers, whoever, and saying, here's what we have. If you're interested, here's what it costs, you know, and so be it. Um, the other 5% of the income from the site comes from, well, okay, I'll say 4.999% uh, comes from consulting gigs um, of users calling me up saying, can I hire you? to help me with something or most of the time it's dealers. Um, I work with a couple of dealers in California a lot about projects they're working on. Um, and most of that's from the network side um, okay. on how do we get this to work? They're still using an old Sulu system and this just does not work. We, we need somebody to fix the network. So that's what I do. Um, and then the last 0.00001% of income comes from people who subscribe to the site. And in and of itself, this is a very fascinating topic, at least to me as a publisher. Um, I give people the ability to pay $4.99 a month or 50 bucks a year to browse the site without seeing ads. And um, it's if I would have done that 10 years ago, people would have said, you're kidding me. Information is free. Um, you know, all of that now. It's there's a lot of people that are, you know, nice enough. And and if people are giving me money, I have to give them something back for that. You know, I'm not there's no way I'm taking some Patreon donations or stuff like that. I have to give people something. And it's the same way with articles that I write. If you're giving me your time, I have to give you something for that. There's nothing that makes me matter than if I read something and I just got a word salad and it didn't tell me anything. Some people are fine with that. That's okay. It's, it's not me. I have to give something for people's time. Uh, so yeah, we have subscribers who subscribe to the site. It's fantastic. And I think the experience on the site without ads is way faster and better. Um, but yeah, that's that's how the income works. Is that pricing model of $50 a year for somebody, does that is it safe to say then that that is basically what you would get, what that user is worth, if you will? So they're supplementing $50 up front rather than having ads, clicking through ads? Absolutely not. It's not uh, related one-to-one -one at all. Okay. I just looked at it and said, what would I pay if I was browsing a site? What's reasonable? Uh, what do I think people will pay? And let's try it and see if it works. Got it. Yeah, I, I much more I, I to get into the analytical side and try and tie that. I, I can't do it. I'm like, I, let's do it. You know, I, I hate to even I'm not a fan of Facebook, but I do like to move fast and break things. Sure. Um, it's just the way my brain works. Understood. Where does audiophilestyle.com go from here? Yeah, from here. Uh, it's an interesting world. Um, like 
10 years ago, I would have thought that my competition is other hi-fi sites. Now, completely not. My competition is the tech giants, Facebook and Google, um, and Google's other properties like YouTube, uh, stuff like that. So um, to counter that, it's you you can't compete like one to one and think you're going to beat them. Like so if I go headlong into video um, and I only publish video on my website, there's going to be those people will see it. But if I do it on YouTube. It's going to be much more massive. But uh, so it's like I'm fighting YouTube. And then, I you know, I've had people say, why don't you post videos to YouTube? And then at the end, tell them, OK, come join me back on my website. Right. I'm like, you don't understand how technology works and that I'm competing with Google for eyeballs. They have this big screen with other videos that are going to entice the person to stay. They make money if you stay. And yet here's me going, come on over to my website. Forget this experience where you don't have to think and it's just presented to you. So no, that doesn't work. Um, so I speaking of video, it's like I'm not an actor. I'm not really a fan of it. That, that's just me. So I just started, I decided to start the podcast up again. I did this back in, I want to say 2009, I started a podcast and nobody in quotes was ready to listen to a podcast back then. Um, they just weren't. I, I mean, I'm sure a fair amount of the listeners to this and people watching will be like, I was listening. Yes, you were, but nobody else was. Um, so I didn't like recording it for nobody. Um, and recording a podcast, yes, I do it for myself and hope others like it, but it, it's a weird thing to spend so much time for no return on it, in other words. Um, so yeah, the the future is uh, absolutely staying, you know, at writing reviews, working on the community and all of that kind of stuff, but supplementing with a podcast, which is like a totally a different avenue. And I don't look at podcasting itself as a moneymaker that podcasting it's it's totally a different thing that's going to bring an audience or get an audience to listen to hi-fi there's all kinds of other ancillary things uh related to it because you can only sell so much advertising on a podcast before you piss listeners off i know i i can't stand most of it so you know you certainly unless you're joe rogan making a living off just podcasting is very, very tough. Sure. I also think that what you're going to do and you've already done with your first few episodes that I've listened to is that you really humanize the people behind the company, which is so important because we're now in a world where we want that personal connection. A majority of us want that personal connection with people, right? And with a company, when you're spending, it could be hundreds or tens of thousands of dollars for audio gear, it's really nice to hear the designer's thoughts and his process about that gear. And it humanizes them, which I think is great as well. The, yes, that was my or is my big goal with this. I thought, you know, what is interesting to me? What can I not necessarily teach people, but what can I offer people who are going to listen to this from a business aspect? And what's interesting to me? And I I thought a lot of times the people behind all of these products are overlooked by everybody. You see the shiny object. You want the shiny object. It's add to cart. I get it. I have no clue anything about what's behind this. And if you think about it, like a good example is 
Andrew Jones, the loudspeaker designer. Wherever Andrew works and produces a loudspeaker, it's going to be fantastic. So he was at TAD, made great speakers. He's now at ELAC. Look at what he's making. They're going to be great versus look at what a company is producing. It's all about the people that are behind the products we love and the services we love. So telling people more about who is making the stuff for them and are they listening to you when you say, I want this in a product? To me, that's much more fascinating. And I will get into you know new products are released. Let's talk about the features. Why did you do that or this? I will get into that in the podcast, but I, I really like emphasizing the human aspect and the the people that are behind all of these things. How, what are your thoughts of objective versus subjective with a forum that obviously has a mix of people that feel either way? And I've said this on prior podcasts that it's similar to religion and politics, right? It's mm-hmm. a very, very contentious topic. But what are your thoughts on it, not only as a forum owner, but you're also involved with manufacturers that not only pay you for advertising, but even as a customer, a consumer, right? I mean, there's a very pair, very expensive pair of speakers over your left shoulder. And if for anybody that's listening and that doesn't or watching that doesn't know what those are, those are Wilson speakers, which... I'm not sure about that model, but I'm thinking $55,000. Uh, they're the Alexia Series 2 and with the custom paint job, a little bit over sixty. So what what is your feeling of objective versus subjective? So my feeling, I start from this place and then go from there. My Where I start is I don't care at all um, about either one or what people you know, want to be interested in or have a conversation about. I I start from we're all adults and this is a contentious subject. We can all talk about it normally. And I would love to host discussions that talk about both at once, talk about each thing separately. Um, but then you run into the real world. You have a starting point and then you run into the real world, right. uh, which is like religion. People are just really dug in and I want to, it's, it's the vocal minority, though, who are dug in and can't be what I'll call rational. Yes, we all can fly off the handle or read something and get, oh, whatever. You know, somebody's wrong on the internet. I'm staying up all night to prove them wrong. Uh, but unfortunately, it's the vocal minority who does ruin it for a lot of people. Um, so we used to have far more objective discussions on the website. Uh, but a lot of the people who were great with those could not resist going over and talking to people that are much more subjective. They couldn't resist getting in that conversation when they didn't want them. And to me, that's like going to a party and putting something in the punch when nobody knows who you are and didn't want you there anyway. You know, it's a community. People come here to get away from the real world, to increase their enjoyment of their hobby. They don't come here to be told what to think or questioned or anything like that. You know, it's it's different. Um, so in terms of my own as a consumer, my own views on objective versus subjective, I I like to know, like objectively, I like to know that a product is well-made and measures decently. I, I you know, I if I saw a product that measured absolutely so terrible, it shouldn't ever got off the engineering page, 
then that's a red flag for me. I don't like that. I would never buy that. But as long as it's within this realm of, you know what, it should be good, then I totally just listen to it uh, to see if it's something that I like. Do you think it's important that people that are on your forum have that same approach? No, they can have absolutely any approach they want. Um, doesn't matter at all to me. Do you think it's important that they're educated about the objective side? No, it's important that they enjoy what they're doing to me. Um, it, I would love it if everybody was educated about the objective side, the subjective side, about everything, you know, educated, education is awesome, but I want to provide a place where people come to have fun, enjoy themselves and increase their enjoyment of this hobby. So I have no anything in terms of what I want from people. I want them to be happy. So it's like audiophilestyle.com, which is the free audio world. Everybody is free, right? Everybody feels free. Yes. Yes. That Because that's what I would want. If I'm going somewhere, I just look at it. What would I want from this? And that's what I do. Okay. Fair enough. Now, are you a Rune user? I use everything. I, I have to use everything and I want to use everything because I want to be able to jump into any conversation on the site and be able to offer people information that can help them. So as I just look here, I see like a Lumen, an Auralic, an Arender. I, I try to have everything. And I was joking with somebody the other day that I have more inventory, in quotes, than a lot of audio dealers. It's just the way it works. Are you a Title and Cobuzz user? Both, yes. And Amazon HD and Spotify. And do you find much difference between all of them? I do find differences. And I, you know, there's, it, it depends on what you're talking about too. To me, the main differences I find with most of them, say, let's talk about title and Cobas. I look at Cobas and the first thing is the user interface that I see. That's how I interact with it. And a lot of times Cobas is on my phone. If I'm in the car or whatever, it is a beautiful user interface. It presents me a lot of the music that I like. Um, and when I look at title, to me, it hurts my eyes and it doesn't present me new stuff that I might be interested in. And so from that point of view, I'm like, well, which one am I going to open on my phone? And then I just start using one over the other. And before you know it, it's like, well, why would I go use title? So yes, I have title. I don't use it very much. I love Cobas. And so Cobas will give me the peer PCM lossless up to 24192. I love that aspect of it. And also... The Cobas team is active in the audiophile style community and is at every hi-fi trade show. They care about what I care about. So supporting them supports myself and supports my own community. Um, trying to get someone from Title now that they, well, once they were purchased with new ownership, trying to get them to even answer a question is like pulling teeth. So it's like, who do I want to support? Who do I want to do business with? It's, it's a no-brainer. Do you believe in MQA? I do not. I think it's a solution for a problem we don't have. But on the same token, if people want to listen to it because they believe the technology, like the way it sounds, or just don't care, fine, go for it. I, I run into the problem, or I have a problem with MQA reducing my choices. I'm a huge fan of options. 
And so now on Tidal, there are some albums that you can only get the MQA version. And to me, that just reduced my own choices. So I don't like that. I am absolutely not a fan of taking stuff away from people who may want something else. Do you know if artists are a fan of MQA? I would say most artists have no idea what MQA is. They would probably go, uh, is it another MP3 or something after MP3? Or, I mean, don't know. They don't care. It's just whatever. Because they're so far removed from that. It's, right. you know, they hear the song on Spotify or whatever in their car and, yeah, okay. Why the change from computeraudiofile.com to audiofilestyle.com? Yeah, that was a business decision that was in the making for, I want to say, like five years. Um, and I didn't take it lightly because it's to change any business name can be a big deal. Um, so I just kept running into these strange, irrational roadblocks that I didn't like. So as Computer Audiophile, people who were unfamiliar with the site thought, oh, you must just review desktop speakers that sit next to your computer. I heard that at trade shows. I mean, it, you wouldn't believe it. Really? Um, and we got pigeonholed into, well, you're going to review speakers. There's no computer in these. There's no music server in these. Just crazy, irrational stuff. I don't blame the people for not knowing. You, you don't know what you don't know. Um, but I got I got tired of that. And so I thought, the name of my company is Audiophile Style. I'm just going to make that the name of the website. That way, when people hear it, Granted, now I have a whole different set of issues with the name from people, but they're going to think, okay, it's an audiophile website. Okay, fine. What kind of issues do you have because of that name now? So people, uh, I've had one advertiser do this multiple times, uh, call it audiophile lifestyle. <laughs> like, okay, understood. And other people, they look at the style part and have a different meaning to it. To me, audiophile style is a way of doing things. It's 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 a method. It's I do it this style, you know, um, versus audiophile style. It's, this isn't like some sort of audiophile lifestyle or, you know, has nothing to do with the other uh, meaning of the word. But I, I'm much happier to deal with these fringe issues than deal with people going, you only review desktop speakers, right? right. So we don't have another name change coming. Oh, God, no, I'm never doing that again. That was painful. It, most painful because of Google. And and that was the issue, huh? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, man. Have that, you solved that all out now? Uh, SEO, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes and no. Um, I got, This is a kind of an interesting one. I got accepted into this thing at Google where they had this one-day thing for search engine optimization experts. But I wasn't. I was like, I'm a publisher and own a website. Um but so there was a few of us there as publishers. Okay. And that I walked away going, I have never been more depressed in my life because the whole thing is like, I'll say it, it's, it's about gaming the system. And you have somebody up there from Google going, no, you just write good content and we'll find it. But yet the whole other thing that whole day was about, here's what you need to do. You need to change these meta tags. You need to do this. You need to do that. And then like, wait a minute what happened to writing good content and have you figure out how to find it? It was such a, that a whole experience at Google was so frustrating and talking to them about, okay, if I do a search and you show my content right on the search page without, you know, 
and you know, sure, there's an attribution, but they just got the answer. They're not coming to my page. And they're weaseling around answering those questions. Oh, you know, we try to give you credit. And so it is a behemoth company that I, I hate to say it, but doesn't really care that much about publishers, despite what they say. Um, so, ugh. yeah, I, I don't ever want to go through that. And they have the tools of, you know, if you're going to change your website URL or name, sure, use this tool. That's all you need to do. Oh, my God. <laughs> Google still says I'm in the process of changing my website's URL. And that, you know, was years ago. So it's frustrating. Is there anything I haven't touched on that you would like to tell us about? Oh, boy, there's probably a, a million things. Um, I, I enjoy these conversations, you know, talking to real people about interesting things. Um, I, I don't know. I, I can't think of anything specifically. Um, but I think just, you know, I'm very, very grateful to all the people in the audio file style community for all the time they spend helping people um, for maybe gain, maybe not gain, but just to help people and coming out there to have conversations. Um, it's it's a fantastic community. Without them, the site would not be here at all. Thank you so much. And Chris, for the people listening, would you mind explaining what your system is? So Wilson Audio Alexia Series 2 loudspeakers, and those are connected via transparent uh, audio reference speaker cable. Then that goes into Constellation Audio Inspiration Monoblocks. And from there, right now, into a Constellation Audio Inspiration preamplifier. And then to, I just, I have to look because there's, you know, there's so much, uh, Berkeley Audio Design, uh, Alpha Reference Series 3 or something like that, uh, DAC. And then for sources, so I'm feeding that. Uh, right now, there's an Arender N20 connected to that. Um, but there's also something I just got in like two days ago, this Aurelix Sirius G2.1 upsampler. It's really cool. So I'm taking that in and out uh, the last couple of days. Um, and then I'll, I'll use Rune that's sitting on a QNAP NAS. So okay. that's that's what's hooked up right now. And there's other stuff everywhere. But I should also mention my headphone system because I absolutely love it. And I didn't used to be a big headphone fan, but the RAL requisite SR1A headphones, they're true ribbon headphones. Absolutely. It's on another level. It's fantastic experience. I sit with them on all day now. So the maker of RAL ribbons has now created headphones? Absolutely. Yes. He's finally perfected the design and it is a unique experience unlike any other headphone. And I just love it. It's fantastic. And it should not go unmentioned that all of this is in a well-treated room, as people hopefully can see behind you. Yes, absolutely. That is the most important thing, the the room. there's. So I talked to several acoustic engineers before I even did anything, and I got different answers from all of them. So that was very frustrating. I'm like, isn't this a science? Can't you look at the measurements and tell me the formula? Absolutely not. You can't do it. Um, so I went with the one that I thought could do the best job and what made sense to me because a company selling acoustic panels, usually they want you to buy more acoustic panels because um, that's what they sell. And that doesn't always work. So I went with what made sense to me and I have a mixture of absorption panels and diffusion panels. 
and they're all placed exactly where they should be placed based on where the speakers are and based on where I sit. And it makes a humongous difference. Uh, room acoustics can make a great speaker sound terrible and can make uh, an okay speaker sound pretty dang good. Awesome. Chris, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate the forum. Please go visit Chris at audiophilestyle.com. Thanks Thank so much for having me on. This has been fun. Awesome. Thanks for listening. Find us on YouTube and Facebook at the Intellectual People Podcast and online at the intellectualpeoplepodcast.com. Check back for exciting new episodes.